I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, the author of the novel Love Marriage. And this is our holiday episode. Happy holidays, listeners. Uh, what are you up to this winter break, Sugi? I am up to so much sleeping. So much sleeping <laughs> and writing. Why and am reading, I not surprised by this? Sleeping. <laughs> and you? Well, I have kids who are 8 and 13, so the sleeping thing is a little bit less than you might imagine. But uh, one of those sons, uh, Moss, is, uh, we say in the script here, star. I think he's a star, but he is Peter Cratchit in the uh, uh, Christmas Carol at the Kansas City Repertory Theater. And I'm really proud of what he's doing. And he's, I got to see him in his show, and he's doing like 30 productions. And it's a musical show, right? Yeah, I was yeah. like, yeah. So that's awesome. He can sing. So I assume that runs in the family and you can sing. I am a lead guitarist. <laughs> Not. My pitch is really bad. I can hear it, but I can't make it come out of my mouth. What All right, you? fine. No, no singing. We'll let, we'll let you off the hook for the singing this time, but maybe guitar in a later show. Right. But uh, today, later in the show, so we're definitely discussing Dickens and some other Christmas stories. But first, we're going to return to talk once more about immigration, which has been a huge story this year. And because it's the holidays, a lot of us are turning to faith and community traditions that are about welcoming people, welcoming strangers. And it's an incongruous thing to be doing that while our quote unquote leaders are batting around the possibilities for funding for Trump's border wall. And after the U.S. has been using tear gas on people who are seeking asylum, um, et cetera, it's time to, I think, go back to this topic. So we're thrilled to have our friend Bic Min Nguyen, who goes by Beth, uh, on with us to talk about her writing and her work. 
Bath and her family left Vietnam as refugees in 1975, and she's a novelist and memoirist who has touched on this experience in both genres. And Beth is the author of three books, uh, Stealing Buddha's Dinner, a memoir, received the Penn Gerard Award from the Pan American Center, and was a Chicago Tribune Best Book of the Year. Short Girls, a novel, was an American Book Award winner in fiction, a Library Journal Best Book of the Year, and her most recent novel, Pioneer Girl, is about the mysterious ties between a Vietnamese immigrant family and Laura Ingalls Wilder. Um, Pay attention, Midwestern readers. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. Um, she's been a Breadloaf Fellow, among other honors, and her work has appeared in anthologies and publications, including the New York Times. She's at work on a series of essays about high school music in the Midwest, which has the awesome title, Owner of a Lonely Heart. She currently directs and teaches in the MFA and writing program at the University of San Francisco. Beth, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me here. Uh, we're so glad to have you on the show. Um, one of the reasons we invited you is that we're both Facebook friends, all of us are, in addition to actual friends, and we found your immigration-related posts, you know, really moving. And um, thinking of your work, uh, you know, we particularly also wanted to talk about Stealing Buddha's Dinner. And we were especially thinking of, or at least I was thinking of the the post in which you talk about um, discussing the current situation with immigration and refugees with your kids. You were a refugee in Guam and Arkansas before moving to Michigan, which is where you grew up. And Given what your kids know about the news, how do you talk about the news with them when they also know about your experience? Yes. Well, so much of parenting is about helping your kids figure out the world. And that's especially tough when there's so much that feels incomprehensible. I've been pretty upfront with my kids about my family's history um, with the war in Vietnam and being refugees. And so they often use that as a way to understand what's happening now, such as with immigration policy and the people seeking asylum. And they asked me recently, you know, when you came to America with your family, did soldiers throw tear gas at you? And I said, no, that didn't happen, but we weren't exactly welcome either. You know, in 1975, which is when we arrived here as refugees, most Americans did not support the idea of Vietnamese people coming to the United States even though the U.S. was directly responsible for there being refugees. And uh, what's so weird, you know, given how things are now, is that it was a Republican administration that supported resettlement. And they basically had to appeal to the nation's anti-communist feeling. You know, I don't, I don't know if I've ever told you this, Sugi or Beth, but, you know, there was a, there's a large Vietnamese population in Kansas City Mm-hmm. Due to resettlement, and in fact, one of our friends and neighbors, Din, who lives across the street uh, from me, came across around, roughly around the time that you did with her children. Yeah, we are all over the United States in in unexpected pockets. Yeah, there's a significant Vietnamese population here as well. Minnesota actually also has a Bureau of Refugee Resettlement, which I think is fairly unusual. Um I think it's a really beautiful thing. I mean, that's what I love about America is that is that we have these populations, you know, and so that's for me what's so upsetting about the anti-immigrant rhetoric that we've been chronicling on this show and that we're talking about now, you know, because it seems a denial of the of the great power of this history. Yeah, and when, it's sort of stunning for me to think about the fact that there were over 130,000 Vietnamese refugees accepted into the United States in 1975. That's a staggering number compared to what the United States is allowing now. 
and that this was supported by a lot of Republicans, you know, Gerald Ford, and that there were communities, states like California, actually, that did not want any refugees there. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a good reminder. It's really helpful to remember the bipartisan nature of that, too. I mean, I, you know, and the other thing, but, and to remember that history, because by contrast, I'm somebody who reported in Iraq on, during the Iraq war. I have a number of, you know, Iraqi friends who have uh, come here to try to claim asylum, and it is exceedingly difficult. And we've been s- treated Iraqis who were involved in that war and helped Americans in that war so differently than we treated the Vietnamese in, in, the, in the 70s. One of the many horrible things that this current administration is doing is going back on their word to protect and shelter refugees from Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, uh, people who were directly affected by U.S. involvement and who were promised safety and shelter in the United States. Now the Trump administration wants to set about deporting as many people as they can from Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos. And it is one of the subjects that hits close to home for my family. And when my children hear about it, it kind of freaks them out. And they ask me, you know, is this going to happen to you? Um, Can you be deported? And it's a conversation we have about the U.S. government and immigration policy and what it means to be a naturalized citizen and all of that. And it just is very heartbreaking because it shows me in real time that promises from the government are not stable. They're not real. And therefore, my whole idea of reality and therefore my children's idea of reality feels unstable. I mean, what do you say to them when they say, can you be deported? I tell them I can't be deported because I am a naturalized citizen. But the point is, so many people are not. So many people don't have protection. Right. And this, that's the injustice. This rule you're talking about was reported in The Atlantic um, and other places about going back on uh, uh, an agreement that, that the White House had signed with Vietnam to protect pre-1995 Vietnamese immigrants from deportation. Is that, the, is that what you're referring to? Right. Yeah. So that rule was that it applies to uh, migrants who are undocumented or have committed crimes, they're saying, right? But it feels like this is the beginning of a, it. In the symbolic gesture, it feels like it's like a revocation of the idea that we wanted these people in the first place, right? Is that is that what it feels like to you? Yes, exactly. And some of these petty crimes that were committed are petty crimes. And Right, if you, you know, get caught jaywalking, you're, you're, you go. You, your life is destroyed. Right. Yeah. Well, what did your kids say? Well, it for me, it is a bigger discussion about what it means to be an American right now and how our personal safety is not the issue necessarily because we are you know, fairly safe. I, I think I'm safe enough compared to all the refugees who aren't safe. And so I'm trying to always widen the conversation beyond us to people who really need our help mm. with children who are elementary school age, it's difficult to know how much they are really taking in and comprehending mm-hmm. and how much they're interpreting in in ways that, you know, I, I cannot imagine or intend. So, and it's, it's not 
it's not just unique to them. I think all American children growing up right now are are going to have a lot to contend with. It's like you can explain it to them intellectually, but you don't know if that's how they're feeling it. Right. I think, I mean, I, I grew up as a refugee in a refugee family, but I still felt safe in my American identity. I never thought that was in danger. I never thought it could be taken away from me. And I think that children now don't feel as safe because of this administration. All of our protections have been turned into things that are called entitlements or that might be, you know, taken away. And that everything that we think, you know, could be there for our for American safety and prosperity is, you know, up up for grabs, including, um, you know, what the future is even going to be with climate change. So, Beth, um, would you read from the beginning of your memoir for our listeners and, and set it up just a little bit so that they can also hear um, the wonderful beginning of that book? Sure, I'll read a brief passage that is near the beginning that sort of goes over how we had to leave Saigon in the first place. We left Vietnam in the spring of 1975 when my sister was two and I was eight months old. By then, everyone in Saigon knew the war was lost. To stay meant being sent to re-education camps or worse. The neighbors spoke of executions and what the communists would do to their children. They talked of people vanished and tortured a haunting reminder of what my grandfather had endured in the North. On April 29, the last helicopters rose from the roofs of the American embassy. The North Vietnamese were closing in, firing rockets at the downtown neighborhoods where looters were still smashing in windows. Tanks would be rolling into the presidential palace by next day. Chu Kung, who was based at the naval headquarters, called Chu An at the Army Communications Center. Two dozen ships had been waiting at the Saigon River for the past month, preparing for the end. Now it was time. I'm getting on a ship, Chukung said. You get the family on anyone you can. Go now. He had been to the United States for training missions. There's a photo of him confident and grinning in hip-slung bell-bottoms, his hair windblown while the Statue of Liberty rises up behind him, and he was certain that we would all be able to meet up there. We'll find each other, he said, as if America were a small town. That night, we headed toward the Saigon River, Chuan driving a motorbike while holding my sister in one arm, and my father on his own bike with my grandmother on the back holding onto me. We drove through the 24-hour curfew and the thundering of shells. All around us, people were running, dropping suitcases, trying to fly down cars. A full panic had hit the city, the kind that sent people racing after airplanes on the runway that made people offer their babies to departing American soldiers. We left that night out of luck, drive, fear pushed into fearlessness. And by further luck, our boat moved forward down the long river, everyone holding their breath for the gunfire they expected, but didn't come. As we reached the sea, the U.S. 7th Fleet appeared in the distance to guide us toward the Philippines. Those days on the ship, people jostled each other to keep the small space they had claimed among the thousand or so on board. There was not enough rice or fresh water and all around us, children screamed and wailed. My father says that my sister and I did not cry, and I'd like to believe it. I'd like to believe we gave them something, a little peace, maybe. 
my father, uncle, and grandmother didn't talk much, worrying about Chukung, if he had made it out safely where he was at that moment. At Subic Bay in the Philippines, we transferred to a U.S. ship headed for Guam. There, at a refugee camp, we awaited entry papers into the United States. For the next month, my father looked for anyone he might know from his neighborhood in Saigon. He joined groups of boys who dared each other to climb the skinny, arching coconut trees and knock down the fruit. It was a small risk for some flavor, a taste that would remind them of home. Thank you so much. I was rereading your book and rereading it now and getting to those passages feels very different to me than it did when I first read your book, which was some years ago. And a little later in that same section, you write, we were in America at last, but there was little to tell from behind the barbed wire chain link fence. There were no trees to climb and not a coconut in sight. The days strung themselves into months of waiting, standing in meal lines, playing cards, hoping for sponsors, sitting around the tents and barracks, talking about what they had heard America was like. And I just was reminded so intensely of both the current news and also things that my family has said about displacement. Um, and of course, like what it is like to think, especially when you emigrate from somewhere warm, of what it's like to come somewhere cold all of a sudden. And you write about Christmas and also Tet in your memoir, and you write about the cold. And I wonder how images of winter and holiday seasons and stories represented or compared to your experience, you know, what you were expecting as you kind of came into this different place with its long stretches of waiting and uncertainty. What did you imagine? And then what did you, how did it compare with what you got? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, my family's earliest, most vivid memories are all about the cold <laughs> because they were so unprepared. They had never experienced anything like that. They didn't know how to deal with ice and uh, didn't know how to even ask someone how to deal with ice. And so the cold was just part of the, their new life, their new, the new way that they had to figure out, um, you know, how to be, how to be an American. At the same time, you know, holidays are, are always about cold weather. All the songs we hear are, are about snow and the weather is frightful. And the imagery, is, <laughs> you know, it's so fixed in the American imagination. Even at my kid's school in California, they draw mittens and snowflakes, even though nobody here ever needs mittens. <laughs> <laughs> so in Michigan, where we were resettled, where it was winter was very long, adjusting to the climate, you know, coming from Saigon was it definitely represented a larger life adjustment. I mean, you more or less get used to winter and the cold. You figure out how to adapt, but still, every year winter feels like something to endure. Yeah, I think there's a part where you talk about your father getting um, blankets, competing for blankets in, in a pile. And um, I just I think about, you know, for years I've taught at cold in cold places, you know, I've lived in very few warm places. And 
then sometimes um, Sri Lankan artists, you know, I'll bring someone to a campus that I'm teaching at or, you know, someone will come visit me and all of the other Sri Lankans in the area or just other friends will be like, do you have coats for that person? Like, will they be okay? You know, will they end up putting up with, you know, will you, will you wrap a sleeping bag around them immediately as they arrive? And yet at the same time, yeah, you're right. It is so fixed in, um, in the American imagination, maybe just the Western imagination. We were talking about, we were talking about a Christmas Carol and Moss, um, Whitney's son p- playing Peter Cratchit at the KC Repertory Theater, which is, you know, I've I've heard a really good production. I would like to go and see it. I think I think I can't. But they even have you know, a moving think, stage. That's pretty cool. Uh, yeah. Um, but I don't normally. I will confess. Um, since I guess I guess it's also that time of year. I don't normally go to a Christmas Carol, and you know, I have friends who recently have been posting about all the Christmas movies they've been watching on Netflix. You know, a Christmas Switch or whatever it's called, a Christmas Prince, um, the Snow Season. Like I don't Wait, know, no. um, a uh-huh. Christmas Switch. What I think that's, I think that's an actual movie. <laughs> I think sounds like that's all, that sounds like they saw it on the Adult Channel in the in the hotel or something <laughs> visiting their parents. I, I am not that. watching these movies, but I understand <laughs> that there is a, a subculture of people who very much enjoy watching and rating them and ironically watching them. Anyway, I, I don't even, I don't go to a Christmas Carol. I don't watch that stuff. I largely do not read, um, you know, holiday stories, et cetera, et cetera. And I wonder, you know, do you have literary oriented holiday traditions, either of you? You know, I have to confess uh when I was growing up, my favorite holiday show was Mickey's Christmas Carol. Oh, nice! And but for a long time, I thought that was the real Christmas story, and Dickens was like some plagiarist. <laughs> <laughs> is that was that is that that Scrooge McDuck, right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> exactly. Tiny Tim. Yes, the whole thing. Oh. Well, I'm gonna. Do you? Um. I'll, First of all, this is slightly off the topic of what Sugi's saying, but I want to just ask Beth really quickly: Do you, do you, do your kids have they read your stuff like those passages that you read from Stealing Buddha's Dinner? Or you know, like my kids don't read my work because they're not old enough. I don't know how old your children are, um, but are they? You know, like we you mentioned earlier that you talk to them about your family's history, but have they read those passages from your books? Do they know them? I'm not sure, actually. My my children are nine and seven, so they could if they wanted to, and the books are just sort of sitting out. I don't know if they read them, but I've talked to them a lot about what actually happened, and my oldest son is really interested in the, the details of the story, so they, they basically know. Hmm. Do they have favorite Christmas stories, like your Mickey's Christmas? Do they have ones that, are, that they pick up on, or are you read to them? I'm not that great at... Christmas culture. <laughs> <laughs> or any holiday story, anything, whatever it's about. Uh, let's see. Uh, well, I did read to them. I used to read to them Twas the Night Before Christmas because uh, it was a, it was this poem, I guess, that I memorized when I was a child. And I still remember a lot of it. And so that was probably the most Christmas-themed story that I read with my children. Twas the Night before Christmas went all through the house. Not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. I think that was the first poem I ever learned. Yeah. Do you know that one, Sugi? I know it now. I don't know at what point I learned it. I don't think that my parents read that to me. Um, I think that probably some of my early 
Christmas tradition. I mean, I, I said I didn't read any Christmas stories, and yet I think I think about that. I remember the Mickey's Christmas Carol, um, so I must have watched it because <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think I did watch it and and liked it. There was um, there was like a Star Wars holiday special, oh which has God. a special a special horrifying place in the hearts of Star Wars fans. Mm. Um, it's it's extremely bad, and I think you can find some of it on YouTube. Um, and I loved Roll Doll, and there is occasionally sort of Christmassy stuff in different bits of dolls. So I, I always ended up going to those. I think. Um, and the Grinch. But, yeah, I didn't. I don't know that I Grinch. read the Grinch, but maybe did your did your kids like the Grinch? I was totally influenced by. I learned. You know what? I read. I saw the Grinch on TV, the cartoon, the original one, which is great, and then read the book. As a kid, I don't know if my kids have seen that cartoon. Yeah, there's, that was scary to my children. There's a live action one, isn't there? That is kind of that is scary. I asked my or kids if they scary, I mean. that one. Well, there's a new one out right now that my kids were like, "We already know that's bad. And we're not watching it." So, but in a Christmas Carol, going back to literature. Um, Scrooge is worn out by the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future because he's a miser, because he's made the mistake of thinking that money brings happiness, which, you know, there's some similarities with the Grinch story there, too, as well. Um, And yet, in America, tell me if I'm wrong, the ritual of going to see a Christmas carol is an upper-class habit. You know, everybody at the show is well-dressed, they're rich, or at least comfortable, and yet... Nobody feels implicated by the narrative, or at least it didn't seem like it at the show that I went to see. Whereas if you force people to see a play about supporting unions or welcoming undocumented immigrants or the stuff we talk about on this podcast or have been talking about right now, using that exact same message that's in the Christmas Carol, you know, Fox News would send a crew out immediately and we'd have a big, you know, war on Christmas episode. You know, so what's going on here with this actual narrative? Do you think a Christmas Carol in particular or theater in general? I'm thinking about the show. Like, I find it a weird American institution. There are very few anti-wealth American narratives. Do you know what I mean? That have become part of the communal culture. And yet this is one. And yet I wonder what effect it has on people to see it every year. Does it, do people, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, do they just ignore it? They just think it's part of Christmas? Do they, why don't they feel implicated by it? Well, I feel like most people with, a level of privilege and I include myself in this as well yeah I'm I'm one I mean we can easily enjoy a show or story that implicates us without actually feeling implicated because we're already you know feeling certain that we're good people right so I feel like that we we kind of protect ourselves in that way I mean people love It's a Wonderful Life which I just saw for the first time a couple of days ago and that's also anti-wealth which I did not know yeah. Until I saw it. And it's actually not really a Christmas movie until the end. Yeah, that's really interesting for you to bring that up. I mean, I think that's another, but that's another classic that's associated with this holiday and yet, and has sort of an, an anti-wealth message, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, you know, I mean, it, what also is interesting to me about uh, Dickens' Christmas Carol is there's not a lot of discussion of Christ or religion in that actual play. And I don't, I haven't seen Wonderful Life recently enough. Was there much discussion of actual religion in the movie? Well, there is the uh, angel. Oh, that's right. Who comes down? But it's it's all in a it's in a, it's sort of in a secular way. The whole like angel gets his wings. 
Well, I mean, there yeah, are I ghosts in, in, in Dickens, right? But they're not like, we came from God and want to tell right. you about this Jesus Christ person. You know, they're, they're not talking about that. They're talking about the holiday, you know? Anyway, you know, but, you know, Christ's teachings in the New Testament, you know, there's a lot of anti-wealth preaching, you know, that it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. You know, I mean, so I think like there's some of that that's happening in A Wonderful Life and in and in A Christmas Carol, I think. And yet both of those things sort of take place in, I wonder how Christmas and or the holiday season creates a fantasy space in which people are not accountable. You sort of write the second that now it's Thanksgiving, I guess when I was a kid, it was later. But the second that sort of Christmas sales are on, there's a sort of fantasy of everyone can afford stuff. And, um, you know, someone might tell a story, but, you know, like the the Nutcracker, for example, like there's so many stories in which dreams or ghosts, but not, they're not really, I mean, I guess, I guess the ghost of Christmas past, present and future try to hold Scrooge accountable, but how accountable does he really end up? Uh, Like, you know, it's, it's anti-capitalist or anti-wealth, but it sort of doesn't last, right? And you get to the new year and the the, the year turns over and all of a sudden we're all back in capitalism again anyway. And I mean, I don't know, I guess like you can also make an argument that with all of those sales, et cetera, maybe it's like heightened capitalism as a fantasy rather than escape from it. I'm not sure. I mean, I know that. Well, you that's know, what like, Scrooge I, is supposed to do is go shopping. Uh, anyway, I, I want to talk about this. What you're saying, I think is really interesting. And I want to hear what Beth has to say about it. But I, also, but I think we should read a part just to remind people of the actual text of Dickens. Can you get, would you guys do that with me? Yes, but who do I have to be? Who do you think you're going to be, Sugi? Listeners, I, Whitney wants me to be screwed. Yes! <laughs> Beth, you're going to be the gentleman. So, you know, there's some, some two guys come in to try to r- recruit Scrooge to give money uh, to do a charity. Do you have to speak in, in, in British accents? Do not. We're going to do this American style. I'm okay. certainly not going to. And I'll be the narrator. So I'll just speak everything that's not in quotes. Okay? Um, are you guys ready? I think so, yes. Okay. They were portly gentlemen, pleasant to behold, and now stood with their hats off in Scrooge's office. They had books and papers in their hands and bound to him. And bowed to him. Scrooge and Marley's, I believe. So, well, that's a very good accent. <laughs> way better than mine. Said one of the gentlemen, referring to his list. Have I the pleasure of addressing Mr. Scrooge or Mr. Marley? Mr. Marley has been dead these seven years, Scrooge replied. He died seven years ago this very night. We have no doubt his liberality is well represented by his surviving partner, said the gentleman presenting his credentials. It certainly was, for they had been two kindred spirits. At, it, at, this, at the ominous word, liberality, Scrooge frowned and shook his head and handed the credentials back. At this festive season of the year, Mr. Scrooge, said the gentleman, taking up a pen, it is more than usually desirable that we should make some slight provision for the poor and destitute who suffer greatly at the present time. Many thousands are in want of common necessaries. Hundreds of thousands are in want of common comforts, sir. Are there no prisons? <laughs> I can't believe you're making me Scrooge. But <laughs> asked Scrooge. Plenty of prisons, said the gentleman, laying down the pen again. And the Union workhouses, demanded Scrooge. Are they still in operation? They are still, 
returned the gentleman. I wish I could say they were not. The treadmill and the poor law are in full vigor, then? Said Scrooge. Both very busy, sir. Oh, I was afraid, from what you said at first, that something had occurred to stop them in their useful course, said Scrooge. I am very glad to hear it. Under the impression that they scarcely furnish Christian cheer of mind or body to the multitude, returned the gentleman, a few of us are endeavoring to raise a fund to buy the poor some meat and drink and means of warmth. We choose this time because it is the time of all others when want is keenly felt and abundance rejoices. What shall I put you down for? Nothing, Scrooge replied. You wish to be anonymous? I wish to be left alone, said Scrooge. Since you ask me what I wish, gentlemen, that is my answer. I don't make merry myself at Christmas, and I can't afford to make idle people merry. I help to support the establishments I have mentioned. They cost enough, and those who are badly off must go there. Many can't go there, and many would rather die. If they would rather die, said Scrooge, they had better do it and decrease the surplus population. Besides, excuse me, I don't know that. But you might know it, observed the gentleman. It's not my business, Scrooge returned. It's enough for a man to understand his own business and not to interfere with other people's. Mine occupies me constantly. Good afternoon, gentlemen. (laughs) Thank you so much for doing that. Um, it's just, uh, but that, that scene is almost exactly that way in the play that I saw that Moss was doing. And it was amazing to me that the arguments there, you know, more workhouses, no welfare, more prisons, more individual responsibility, no communal action, you know, seem to map directly onto 2018, the 2018 conservative view of what to do about the poor and, or people less well off than yourself. And the solutions, the word that Scrooge hates is liberality, or I would say neoliberalism meaning a better, more charitable person. Be a better consumer, spend more, but be a capitalist just the same. This is why Christmas is ultimately so disappointing. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's all about anticipation, and there's just a few days of a generous spirit. But part of the generosity is you know, fueled by this idea that we've got to get more and buy more and spend money we don't have and use credit cards and lay away or do whatever we can to you know, give a big, generous Christmas. But then it's all over and then all the bills are waiting people and then everyone's back to their usual routine of ignoring, you know, the the poor and the destitute, as the gentleman said. And and all that strikes me is, is really just capitalist and American. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that I thought about. It was like, yes, it seems to criticize wealth, but in the end, all Scrooge has to do is just like buy a big goose for the Cratchits and mm-hmm. give some money away, and he can still have his business. He's not like going to share the means of production. Right. It's just a small Band-Aid. <laughs> yeah, it's... I don't know. I mean, consider Dickens, of course, was paid by the word. And so, like, even in the very mode in which the story was told, right, like, the story was told at the greatest volume possible so he could make the most money out of it. And I don't know, like, that just seems, unfortunately, sort of perfect. So, Whit, I know that you celebrate Hanukkah at this time of year. And, Beth, as you were writing in your memoir, um, people in Vietnam celebrate Tet a little bit later. And in Sri Lanka at this time of year... 
I mean, there are significant um, Buddhist and Hindu populations and Muslim populations as well, of course. But Christmas and New Year are huge. And I mean, New Year is really, I've been in Sri Lanka for New Year several times, and it's really massive. Um, so what does your family do? Does your family celebrate Tat now, Beth? We do. But because of living in America, Christmas is more important. It's because we children grew up here. And, you know, we were Buddhist. Vietnamese people are generally Buddhist or Catholic. Christmas wasn't foreign to us because of colonization. So we celebrate the holiday, you know, as consumers, as American consumers. When we got here, we had a fake tree and we just bought a lot of toys and we got money as presents. Uh, I loved it. I did not know that there was anything religious about Christmas, you know, for a long time when I was a child. I thought it was just this day where people get money and eat a lot of food. Yeah, we also celebrated basically secular Christmas. Uh, we also had a fake tree and a whole set of ornaments, which I realized later that my mother detested. Um, she really detested all of it and was just doing it, I think, because we wanted it. And because, you know, we went to school with kids who celebrated Christmas and there was this sort of secular version of it. And so, yeah, you know, we had this tree that we would assemble every year and then one year we basically launched a mission to see who Santa was. And mm-hmm. when we discovered the truth, um, my mom was basically like, well, thank God I don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> the tree never came out again. So we basically foiled our own Christmas um, by exposing it as a, as a fantasy. Oh, wait. So the minute that she, that you guys figured out Santa Claus didn't exist, she was like, all right, we're done with Christmas. That's the end. Pretty much. Yeah. Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> Well, I didn't, I mean, I didn't realize, like, I think... And thus um, the Scrooge was born. (laughs) (laughs) But it was like, you know, of course, like, lots of little kids figure out that there's no Santa, but, like, the moment that you confront that truth with your parents, right, it was, like, um, exploding something. And so then she must have thrown away the tree or put it away. And then in the years after that, I would always kind of hassle her to to take it out again. You know, can't we assemble it? And she'd be like, no, it's not our (laughs) house. Wow. (laughs) and I mean I totally get her point now I mean it it actually wasn't our holiday and I think she had maybe I should ask her maybe she just resented having to uh assemble it or I don't I don't actually know how they decided to do it but it was pretty I mean in retrospect it's pretty funny but um yeah our our hall of presence also went down massively after that so I think we we all consider it kind of like a fun time of year now, but we don't attach to it, I think, in the same way that we did when we were younger. Well, here's the thing that you don't want to let your kids know about, and that's Hanukkah, because my kids are operating under a Christian slash Jewish system, and that is a massive present overkill mm-hmm. situation is what that is. That's uh, eight days for Hanukkah and then also Christmas. They love both of these ideas. That's amazing. So I grew up in a heavily Jewish community and briefly went on a campaign to sort of be like, you know, if we can't have Christmas. Why can't we have Hanukkah? Lots of the other kids have Hanukkah. My parents were like, no, <laughs> we got rid of Christmas. We're not having Hanukkah. But um, I was, you know, really fortunate, I think, to be invited into a lot of homes where Hanukkah was being celebrated and to see a lot of rituals around that, which was pretty great. It's so how does your family do kids. both? Sorry, go ahead, Beth. I was just saying it's a good deal for your kids. It is definitely a good deal. It's a, I it's see a li- the point. Yes. <laughs> so um, you told me, Beth, that you were actually, after this interview, going to go buy Christmas trees. So I'm assuming your Christmas celebration is pretty standard. Uh, 
Is there any additions or unique parts to it? The first time I ever had a not fake Christmas tree was maybe two or three three years ago. And it was a little scary for me because I grew up, you know, this refugee family that there was nobody in our community who had an actual tree that wasn't, you know, the same one brought it every year. So it was really strange for me to get an actual tree. Like there's a, there's a tree that's, that was cut down in some forest and is now in my living room. It, it's, it, it made Christmas kind of real in a way that I had not experienced before. And I also felt, I don't know, sort of white American, mm, yeah. I guess, uh, in, in a way that I had never felt before either. So that... I, so when I go and get a real tree, I feel like I'm participating in something that doesn't quite belong to me. I'm kind of just, you know, pretending. But that's sort of no different from how I have felt most of my life. Wait, I feel like I'm just realizing, are fake trees like an immigrant yes. thing? See, oh I, didn't, I didn't know that. Okay. That wasn't a thing that I knew. I, that's interesting. I, I, I would never make that distinction in my mind. Like, it's just like, well, you choose to get a fake. Some people, I, you know, get, get fake trees and some people get real ones. Oh, it's an immigrant thing. For oh, sure. okay. Because there are I mean, white, sure you know, there are there are non-immigrant white people who get fake trees in my family. It's just kind of like a convenience thing. Oh, that too. But I mean, I don't know any refugee or immigrant family that would go out and get a real tree. That's just wasteful. And I would say, yeah, that's exactly it. <laughs> I would say non-immigrant is, uh, as we know, obviously not the case since we're all immigrants. So let's put it, let's let's explain it that way. An earlier period of immigration, people. Um, so Christmas isn't the only holiday, as we've been talking about, um, and Dickens isn't the only holiday text. Uh, there's a pretty interesting Hemingway story called God Rest You, Merry Gentlemen. Do you guys know this story at all? Um, that is set at Christmas and includes the line, Kansas City was very like Constantinople. You may not believe this. No one believes this, but it is true. So I like it for that line. It also is a very... <laughs> It's also a very fairly serious indictment of Christianity, though more in terms of the church's teaching about sex than its teaching about money, and has a very angry and bitter Jewish doctor who's really kind of the hero of the story. Are there are there other stories or texts that either of you would recommend for the holiday season? I always think of Little Women as being yeah. Christmassy. So much of the book revolves around that, and it's the the book's opening, and it's you know cozy time and the coziness to the the whole book to me is associated with that christmas opening you know that outside world is cold and it's full full of dangers but inside is is warm and safe and that's supposed to be the christmas feeling you know quiet calm a little magic a little joy with family it's amazing that you say that because i went back um and looked up uh washington irving's the sketchbook um, and he has three different essays about English Christmases. He's visiting England and writing back to Americans about what it's like there. And one of the points he makes is exactly that, that like the importance of Christmas is it's sort of its warmth and its coziness and that it's wintertime and all this stuff. And, he, and, and that it's really interesting. Like I feel like in him and in maybe in Little Women also, like is you can see the beginning of the definition of what that holiday means for Americans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also think of... Little Women. Um, this has, I mean, repeated Christmas scenes and, and that coziness, but Santa Claus isn't necessarily cozy to everyone. And what you were telling me about 
Abelardo Diaz Alfaro's story, Santa Claus Comes to La Cuchilla, yeah. which sounds pretty great. And I was, <laughs> I was looking for a version in English, and I couldn't find it. My Spanish isn't good enough to read it in Spanish. There's a Puerto Rican writer, and um, I believe that the plot of that story is that Santa Claus goes to a particular town, um, and the children perceive him as the devil, yeah. which is kind of <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> so I love the humor of that and the way in which he kind of appears in this unexpected way. It seems like in a lot of communities, it's shocking day, that that story's not translated for crying. I'm out sure well. it isn't. Maybe I just hadn't. Maybe I just couldn't find. Might not be able to get it, it on the internet. Having, maybe poor googling skills today. But um, yeah, I'm gonna. I'll have to try and find it in the university library. But it seems like Three Kings Day in um, a lot of Spanish-speaking communities is just as, if not more, important than Christmas. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Uh, it's certainly here in Kansas City. Um, and we also, listeners, if we're missing stories that you that we should be talking about, this is our opportunity to call out to you, tweet to us about it, tell us if what your holiday uh, traditions are or your holiday literary, uh, you know, sort of touchstones. So we were racking our brains to think of literary novels that result specifically around Christmas or Hanukkah or New Year's. We weren't coming up with much, though, as Whit just said. We'll, we'll gladly retweet suggestions from you. But there are a ton of movies, um, and it is called A Christmas Switch, by the way, on the subject of Christmas and the holidays in general. And so, Beth, I'm wondering, do you have any theories on why movies have dealt with this subject so much more frequently than books? Is there something that makes the holidays more cinematic and less literary? I think it could be practical reason which is that nobody's gonna read a christmas carol any other time of the year so the amount of sales you can get from it is just going to be limited whereas yeah, a movie, i was thinking about that you can I, bank I, more on all right go ahead you finish your thought but i have an argument to make in a minute <laughs> i just think you can bank more on a movie i mean this the sub genre of holiday movies i mean that is really holding up lifetime and hallmark channels all right this is time for my argument here's my question see now i was thinking about this and i get the point but also like aren't there a lot of writers who would kill for the sales of christmas carol basically i mean like if you could have a story that would be brought out and read every christmas like some of those movies are even die hard is you know it would oh, seem like people would like that <laughs> yeah but people do people reread books i mean i think they're like they're so Suki I mean, does few, I, well, I, I actually do too I'm, i love rereading but i feel like a christmas carol is one of the few books that people bring out every year i don't know maybe nicholas sparks has done this he seems like he would be somebody who would really get that the, the, the christmas story it's just really hard in literature to find i don't know i i'm i mean look i'm trying to figure this out i went and got a uh, uh an anthology of more recent christmas fiction you know like this this came out in 83 I got it from the library. And there's a lot of stuff, but none of this stuff is, like, canonical, you know? There's, like, well, Truman Capote, a I, Christmas memory. I don't know that piece. Um, you know, Thomas Hardy, get Going the Rounds. I don't know that piece. But I think you're looking in the wrong section of the bookstore. Because I think that if you go to children's books, you can find so much more stuff about Christmas, right? Like... Um, the White Witch, the White Witch's version of Narnia and the Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe, it's always winter and never Christmas. Children want it to be Christmas year-round. Um, and so, you know, I remember when I was a kid, like Home Alone came out around Christmas season, and it stayed in theaters for something like over a year. And, um, you know, you can find, you know, the the guy 
wrote The Wizard of Oz, L. Frank Baum, also wrote a novel about Santa Claus. Um, I, little kid who had, you know, had my Christmas canceled, like went around bookstores. I would, for years, I would go into bookstores and go up to the bookseller and sort of be like, do you have this novel by L. Frank Baum called Santa Claus? And they were like, no, no one has heard of, heard of this book, kid. No one wants to read it except for you. And I was like, but I'm the most persistent kid. I'm going to, I'm going to keep asking you. And I think, you know, the fact that he's someone like that who had written this huge series that was, you know, canonical, the fact that he would have turned his attention to something like that. There's all these little, these slight mentions, right? Like little women um, and um, like a little princess, like lots of British literature, lots of kids literature in particular, like that, that space, it seems to me is it's children who want Christmas or the holidays the year round, Um, children who want to kind of live in that fantasy space um, that is that of course like capitalists love because then you are buying the kids all the toys and the kids are actually in some way I think profoundly anti-capitalist and wanting it to be around like wanting it to be good for everyone and for everyone to have what they want there are children for the revolution that's my theory I can get behind that but I'm also hearing in this that somebody really needs to challenge Dickens because he has just held on to the spot for all this time with the Christmas Carol. I totally yeah. agree. I think there's holes in the Dickens story. We need well, to see you know, a democratic socialist to write one goddamn <laughs> Christmas story. Yeah, forget forget like we don't need the neoliberalist version. We need we need like the I I want to read like Alexandria Ocasio Cortez's um, version of a Christmas Carol, you know, the modern version and. Lo, the legislators went into the Congress and left their freshman orientation. Um, you don't know what you're doing, said the corporate. So the corporate speakers, like this is a terrible, terrible version of this. Someone take this away from me. But I think it would be so fun to read. That would be good. That'd be great. That you could still have a lot of the same lines echoed. You know, more prisons. <laughs> I do. One of the reasons I, I this is a thought that I had, which is while you guys were talking, which was that. Um, Maybe it is that for the adult literature, and I, I agree to you with your point about the children's literature, but maybe it is that mostly Dickens' story is peculiar in that it's a pro-Christmas story. Mostly Christmas is a thing to be against. Like the Hemingway story is making fun, is is relying on the on the dramatic irony of it's supposed to be Christmas and everyone's supposed to be nice and this terrible thing occurs that's based on the teachings of the religion that Christmas is supposed to celebrate, right? My, my wife recommended me also just to speak of really happy things, uh, uh, a passage by Charlotte Delbo, the great French writer, uh, in her book Auschwitz and After, which is about a Christmas in Auschwitz that she uh, went through. Um, and that operates under the same principle as the Hemingway story. And I, I would imagine that a number of serious fiction stories like operate that way. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I think the idea of... Um an anti-Christmas book. Like it is, I mean, there's different ways to look at this too, right? Like there's other, I'm trying to look up a, a site by, I have a friend who, um, named Laurel Steiner who writes kids books and her books are often really, really funny and comment specifically on Judaism in a, in a entertaining way. I just got, um, a kid I know whose last name is Baxter a couple years ago, Baxter, the pig who wanted to be kosher, which is a book by Laurel. And it's just sort of like this turning um, the presumptions 
on their head, right? Like uh, there's a Lemony Snicket book, um, which Laurel recommends on her website. It's the Latka Who Couldn't Stop Screaming, A Christmas Story. So like there's, again, here a kid's version for that as well. I mean, maybe is, I mean, is Die Hard pro-Christmas? Like what Christmas story isn't in some way in conflict with the very notion of Christmas? Or, like, that's usually part of the arc. I don't understand how Die Hard became a Christmas movie. Well, it, I think it's I actually. Mean, set we're going to have to kick you it? off the podcast. I, mean, I, know that, <laughs> I know that it's set there, but it's that's just it's not actually a Christmas movie. I'm going to say that. I know that's controversial. It's controversial. I, I have watched all the Die Hard movies. I, I am not convinced it's a Christmas movie. It ha- it takes place during Christmas, but I'm not sure that qualifies it as a Christmas movie. I think people just want an excuse to watch Die Hard at Christmas time because yeah. they're sick of think, watching Christmas movies. I think go ahead and watch. But, you know, Christmas does tend toward redemption and the happy ending and transformation toward good. And I think a lot of literary fiction writers don't really want to go that way. <laughs> Maybe that's it. Maybe that's it, right? Like it's prescribing. Is it? prescribing some sort of simple happiness that isn't, I mean, you can have a complex happy ending, but maybe the part that you, maybe w- where you start is not the kind of complexity that most literary writers are going for. Die Hard in our family was a Thanksgiving tradition, actually. I totally agree with what, with what both you and Beth are saying. I, I want to point, just mention one other book that operates under the principles that Beth was talking about, which is a uh, that Sandy Weisenberg, my friend, who's a writer up in Chicago, um, recommended a Grace Paley novel, a Grace Paley short story called The Loudest Voice, um, which is about a, a young girl who's Jewish who's, who's then put into a Christmas play. A, a recording of Grace Paley reading it was actually broadcast on New Letters recently. We've been talking a little bit in and out during the podcast about Tet, and I wondered if you could sort of describe to us um, what the celebration of that holiday looks like. Tet is the Lunar New Year, and it is the biggest, most important holiday. I've never even thought of it as a holiday to compare with Christmas because there's no comparison. (laughs) I mean, Christmas is not important compared to the significance of Tet. We obviously screwed up. We should have done this whole podcast on Tet. But it's not about presents. You know, it's just, I mean, the children get money, and everybody eats really good food and you you celebrate, but it is a very different feeling, a very different spirit than Christmas. In what way? It doesn't seem, it's about family. Okay, so Ted is about family celebration in a way that doesn't have to be validated with the exchange of gifts. And the elders give money to the children, but it doesn't go the opposite direction. And there's a lot having to do with, with honoring your ancestors and the spirit of your ancestors and just your, your family history in a way that feels so much more profound than what we do at Christmas, which to me just, just feels like an exchange of gifts. Is there one like central ceremony or dinner or, you know, or is it something that happens over a period of time, sort of like Hanukkah does? Ted is an all-encompassing holiday that can take a long time to prepare for. There are a lot of different traditions based on different 
how different countries celebrate it in terms of cleaning beforehand and the kind of food you serve and all of that. But the important thing is that it's a new beginning and that you know, you're honoring your past and your family's past while also looking forward to a better, stronger, more prosperous future. It sounds in some ways similar to New Year celebrations that, um, I mean, I think we were very off the cuff sometimes with our celebrations, but like giving out, uh, parents giving kids money, um, you know, wearing new clothes, um, those being like small ways in which we, we would recognize this new year, which in some cases we would celebrate twice, like with the Roman calendar and then with our calendar. Mm-hmm. So maybe, yeah, like maybe at the new year we'll have to do um, a best of new year celebrations episode, which would be, which would be, uh, it would be nice to think that 2019 could be better than 2018. Wow. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Beth, thank you so much for joining us on the holiday edition of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me, and happy holidays. Yeah, happy holidays to you. And we encourage our listeners to check out your wonderful novels and to keep an eye out for the forthcoming, again, amazingly titled Owner of a Lonely Heart. I love that so much, Beth. And you'll find links to all of those books on our show page at lividhub.com. And a toast, my love, my dearies. To our Merry Christmas, God bless us. God bless us. God bless us, everyone. All right, so with all this talk about the Christmas Carol and Hanukkah and the holidays in general, I think it would be helpful to bring on Peter Cratchit, also known as my son Moss. Moss, welcome to the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Do you know that you've been much discussed here? No. (laughs) Well, does that mean you don't listen? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Um, And we... He is not the only member of the family to have played a part in Christmas Carol. My wife, Gail Levy, is also here. What was your role? I played Sally Cratchit. Oh, so we have a couple of Cratchits here, the whole family. We're Cratchit kids. So, Moss, starting with you, uh, what have you learned from playing Peter Cratchit and hearing A Christmas Carol over what? You've heard it maybe 30 times by now? Yeah. Um, I've learned that Scrooge can change every time he does change <laughs> over and over again. Yeah. Do you think this really happens in real life? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Do you know someone who's changed that way? No. Is there anyone you think should change Never. that way? Like me? Our president. <laughs> uh, we're doing the politics right here at the uh, Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. All right, Gail, what, did you, you... Look, you were a young... Jewish girl in San Francisco playing in this, like, you know, British Christian play, you know? I was, was nine years old. Yeah. So did you learn anything? What was what was that, you know, involvement in the uh, sort of classic Christian, you know, Christmas play? So you? the version that I was in was uh, American Conservatory Theater's very first production of Christmas Carol. I originated the role of Sally Crotchet. And it you can was, clap Moss if you want. It was not a very, as I recall it, it was not a very Christian production. Like, it was really dark. The staging and the lighting and the um, uh, 
the production in general was really dark. And I don't remember there being a lot of religious overtones. Well, I mean, there's not in the, we actually talk about this. That's interesting in the podcast, like the how there's not a lot of, religious. there's almost no mention of religion in the play. Right. And so, and there weren't even, there weren't a lot of Christmas trees and no crosses or anything like that. There may have been a cross in that, um, when we see Scrooge's, um, burial site but i i definitely don't remember anything like that so did it feel more secular to you yeah it felt secular it felt really kind of philosophical and kind of um a little bit like a scary story Hmm. which it kind of is i mean it's Mm -hmm. got these spirits and things coming back to life do you think of it as a really like christian oriented play moss no it doesn't seem like that this year they lingered more on on the dark side with this year's play but it changes every year. So you can see the audience, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Do you feel like they're, like, affected by the play? Do they change? Do you, do you think that they just, like, consume it and walk away or, or, and are unchanged by its during message? During, like, tiny Tim scenes and stuff, they all do little, like, aww or, like, cry a little bit. <laughs> really? Yeah. Wow. They're really happy when they come out. Mm-hmm. I see them coming out in the lobby. And then they also donate a lot of money afterwards. Mm-hmm. So I think they are. They kind of have this Christmas spirit after their production of it. All right. So my last qu- question is about this Christmas Hanukkah issue for the holidays, which we as a family negotiate. <laughs> Moss, I think you're going to... I know how you're going to answer this question, but I want to know, is there one of these holidays that you prefer if you had to choose one? Or is it the whole idea that you get to have both needing more presents? I don't really get more presents. Oh, okay. You're going to argue the premise of the question. No, but, uh, well, since mommy's side of the family is Jewish and celebrates Hanukkah, I get presents from them. And since your side is Christian, I get presents from them. And then it equals out if both sides were Christian or both sides were Jewish and celebrated Hanukkah. That's an interesting rationalization there. What What did you feel about Christmas growing up? Um, so we did not celebrate Christmas at all. And since basically America is a Christian nation and we have Christmas other everywhere, I kind of resented it. Yeah. Um, although, um, I really, yeah, but I, I mean, I liked Hanukkah. Um, and now, as you know, I have kind of a mixed relationship (laughs) to Christmas. Um, and so I have the kids do Hanukkah, although in a rather stripped down version. Boss. Well, I like Hanukkah. I like both, but Hanukkah's fun because each day, like, you're supposed to do something. One day's for family, or one day's for charity, or, like, peace, or... Yeah. Um, one last question. Gift list? (laughs) No? You're not going to say what your gift list is? Not even one word? No. How are you expecting Santa to get the message? We all know it's not Santa. Oh, dang it. And with that, that's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the News tab. We're going to ask yet again, have you given us a rating on iTunes? If not, all you Scrooges, step up and spread the love. It really helps others find our show. We'll post a link to the books we referenced this week there on Facebook at FNF Pod and on Twitter at FNF Talk. Happy holidays and happy reading.
Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.